Parshat Kitisa. I want to begin by saying that this week the parsha is about Machatita Shekel. So if you'll excuse me, I'm going to tell you a story about Machatita Shekel. I think you'll enjoy it very much. Because um, there was a rabbi, he was the chief rabbi of uh, Pressburg, the Ketav Sofer. His father already was the chief rabbi of Pressburg, he was the Chassam Sofer. He was from Frankfurt, he came and he became the chief rabbi. He died in 1838, but he was married twice. He didn't have children from his first wife, and from his second, he wouldn't divorce her, even though that is, there is a halachic grounds to divorce if you don't have children, he wouldn't divorce her. She passed away, he remarried the daughter of Rabbi Akiva Eger, okay, who was the same age as him, they died actually within a year of each other. He died in actually 1839, Rabbi Akiva Eger died in 1838, and he had a son, I guess he was quite old already when he had his son, his name was... Um, uh, Rabbi Avram Shmuel bin Yomin Sofer, and he became the Rav after him, but he was quite a young man. He was a Rav for about 40 years. The Ketav Sofer was one of the most significant rabbis of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And on, a, I guess, an annual basis, they would have a meeting of all the rabbinic leaders of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. They would all come together, and in different years, different rabbis would host the meeting. And one year, the Ketav Sofer hosted the meeting at his home, and it was Parshas Kisisa. Okay, so he had a Machtis Hashekel from the time of the second Beis Hamikdash, two thousand years old. He had a coin, a Machtis Hashekel coin, and he decided he's going to show it to all the rabbis, all the rabbanim who had come for this meeting. Anyway, he takes out the Machtis HaShekel, he says, you know, this week we talk about the Machtis HaShekel, and I have one here. This is a coin that was minted, minted so that people could give the tax to support the Beis HaMikdosh. That's the only reason, by the way, the Machtis HaShekel coin, it's made from silver, the only reason it was minted was so that it could be used by Jews throughout the ancient uh, Middle and Near East, to pay their annual tax to look after the Beis HaMikdosh. Okay? Everyone goes, ooh, ah, amazing, unbelievable. And he passes it around and everyone's looking at the coin and they're you know, closing one eye and looking to see all the details of the coin. Amazing coin. I can't believe I'm holding a machtis a shekel. A machtis a shekel from the time of the Second Temple. Anyway, 20, 20 minutes later, Whatever it is, half an hour later, he says, okay, where's the coin? And they look around. I don't have it. I gave it to him. I gave it to him. Where is it? They've lost the coin. It's gone. He says, what do you mean it's gone? They look on the table. They look on all the plates. They look on nothing. The coin has disappeared. He says, I'm sorry to have to ask you to do it. It's a very precious coin. I spent a lot of money on it. You're going to have to empty your pockets. What? Empty our pockets, all the leading rabbis of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. We're not talking about, you know, a meeting of ordinary people. So there's one rabbi there, his name is Rabbi Yehuda Assad. And he says, oh, hold on, well, hold on a minute, hold on. I don't empty your pockets, let's wait a few minutes and see what happens. Everyone's looking around, it's very uncomfortable, very, very tense. Can you imagine the tension in that room? Everyone's sitting there and they're looking at each other. Ten minutes goes past, the Ksav says, okay, enough. Everyone has to empty their pockets. 
He's, he's unbelievably anxious. He wants to get his coin back. Rabbi Yehuda Asad said, no, no, let's wait another few minutes. Let's see. Let's see what happens. They're waiting. It's dead quiet in the room. It's very embarrassing. Very embarrassing. Suddenly, a waiter runs in from the kitchen and says, I found this. I found the coin. I found the coin. Somebody must have put it on the plate. And when they collected the plates with the food, whatever it was, the, the coin was on the plate. And he came in. And they, they, they turned to Rabbi Huda Asad and they said to him, are you a Novi? Are you a prophet? How did you know that this was going to happen? He said, I had no idea. What are you talking about? You had no idea. You asked us to wait. You must have known that the coin would be found. He said, no, it's nothing to do with that. He says, I also have a Machtis shekel coin. He takes it out of his pocket. He said, but you know, when the Ksav uh, said he wants to show his Machtis shekel coin, I decided I'm not going to show it because I wanted him to take all the glory. He's the host. He wants to be so proud of the coin that he's showing. I didn't want him to, you know, to, I didn't want to uh, uh, burst his bubble, burst his balloon. And therefore I didn't take out my coin. But how would it have looked if everyone emptied their pockets and suddenly I've got Machtis Hashegel in my pocket. Everyone's going to think that I was, I was the one who stole it. So I was davening in my head. I'm saying, Tehillim, I'm davening, I'm begging God, please let the coin be found that I shouldn't fall under the suspicion. An amazing story, isn't it? Anyway, so I have Machtis Hashegel. So I hope that nobody here has anything in their pockets like a Machtis Hashegel, just in case it gets lost and I have to ask you to empty your pocket. That you shouldn't, you shouldn't be embarrassed and have to ask because there's no waiter here to run in because there's no plates going out to the kitchen. This is a Machtis shekel from 126 BC. It's 2,200 years old and it's from the time of the second base Amikdash. This is a silver coin that I keep on me at all times. This was used as a tax for the base Amikdash. So you can have a look at it and then we'll begin the shear. No, I want to have it on me. It's a holy thing. How many holy things no, can you have on you and it's easy to keep? No, but that's good because it yeah. has like a holy Yeah, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. This is a real Machtis shekel. I bought it from a coin dealer. And you can buy them. They're not, you know, it costs a few hundred dollars. It's not as expensive as, as you would think. It's a silver coin. This is in okay condition. And this is a Machtis shekel. I bought it about seven, eight years ago. And uh, this is what they used to use in the time of the second Beit HaMikdash to pay the tax. All the Jews throughout, where they, where they lived in Bovel, where they lived in Syria, wherever they lived, Neretisrael, obviously, this one I think was, is from Syria. This was actually minted in Syria. But it's a certain weight of coin, and it's known as a Machtis shekel. Even in the non-Jewish numismatics world, this is known as a half-shekel coin. They know what it is. So it's a well-known coin. Let's begin the shear while you're looking at it. So I'm going to look at the psukim. I'm going to do something which I haven't done as much recently as I should have. I'm going to do. Um, I'm going to go through the psukim, and I'm going to point out the anomalies in the pasuk, in the actual text, the Hebrew text of the of the Torah, so that when we come to the questions later on, they're going to be familiar. But I'll tell you what it is. We read through the text of the Torah. It's written in very simple Hebrew, classical Hebrew. And we think we know what it's saying because we know the translation of the words. It's not difficult to translate the words. 
But we don't understand, because we're not fluent in classical Hebrew, we don't understand the nuances of the way the Hebrew is constructed. And we don't necessarily have in our heads like a sort of Google comparison so we can compare it to all the other similar texts that may exist. And therefore, we don't necessarily get what's wrong with the text. You know, you know there's, a, there's a safer that came out years ago. I don't, know if it, I don't know if it's still in print. It's called What's Bothering Rashi? Did you ever see it? It was, a, it was a book that came out, What's Bothering Rashi? And it went through many different Rashis in the Torah. Why did Rashi feel the need to comment on this particular phrase or pasuk or whatever it was? What was bothering him that he felt the need to explain it to us? What's bothering Rashi? What I want to do now, I want to, I want to act like Rashi together with you to see what bothers us from this text. And then we're going to try and understand the text afterwards. Okay, so that we understand. And God spoke to Moshe saying as follows, either saying or to say. The question is, what, does, what normally follows this posuk in the Torah? We're familiar with that, right? Speak to the Jewish nation and say to them, that's not what it says here. So immediately I have a question. Here, this is what's bothering Rashi, by the way, right? That's what's bothering Pini. Ki tisa et rosh b'nei Yisrael ifkudehem. Ki tisa, I've got the translation below. Ki tisa et rosh b'nei Yisrael ifkudehem. When you count the sum of the children of Israel according to their number, what strikes you about this phraseology? First of all, does the word tisa mean count? No, it means elevate, right? Ki tisa, when you elevate. But what does the word ki mean? Ki has, by the way, four different meanings. The Gemara says the word ki has four different meanings. There's only one that really is relevant here. When, right? Ka'asher. When, when you count. Does that sound like an instruction? Or does that sound like a suggestion? Sug a suggestion. Yeah. When you do, etc., etc. Okay, so is Moshe Rabbeinu being commanded? Is he being commanded? Or is he being um, told that in the event that you do this, this is what you should do? Yeah. Sounds like he's being told in the event that this happens. Yes. So that's an odd way to express it. Because... We're now going to talk about taking a census of the population of the Jews. So what is he being told? Is he being told to count them or not being told to count them? And if he's not being told to count them, what is he being told to do? Let's have a look at what the Pasuk says. Then each man shall give a ransom for his soul to God when you count them. Why? So that there will not be a plague among them when you count them. What? You count the Jewish nation and they're going to be affected by a plague? Why would they be affected by a plague? Why, if you count someone, are they going to be affected by a plague? And why do they have to give something? What is the giving of something going to help if they're going to be affected by a plague? So you see, we've just read one posuk. You see how many problems we've managed to extract from this one posuk? The most simple thing, right? When you count the Jews, make sure they give a bit of stalker so that they don't get a... F but it's not so simple. 
Why should they be affected by a plague? What is the giving of money going to make any difference? And why is this being treated as a suggestion, not as an instruction? Continues the posuk. The next posuk says, Zer yitnu. This is what you shall give. Zer. Kol ala pakudim. Each one that passes among those who are counted, ala pakudim, machatzis shekel. He should give a half a shekel, b'shekel ha-kodesh, according to the, um, the, uh, the holy shekel, esrim geira ha-shekel, machatzis ha-shekel, trumal Hashem. Okay? The shekel is worth 20 geiras. Half a shekel... I guess it's 10 geiros, as a donation to God. So what are we being told here? I know it's a little convoluted. We're being told, first of all, I'm going to tell you something that's not included in the shir. Zeyitnu. This is what you should give. God actually showed a replica in fire, some type of uh, uh, 3D hologram, to Moshe Rabbeinu, so that he should know what a machtis shekel is. You know, what you saw, that coin over there, the machtis shekel. God showed the machtis shekel to Moshe Rabbeinu, so that he should know why. Because Moshe Rabbeinu didn't really understand. What are you talking about, that you should give something? Why would you give a coin, which is the most material of all things, to save people from, uh, from being affected by a plague? So this is, this is the source if you give charity, it saves you from certain death. Why should that be? Because we're put in a physical world. And in the physical world, you have to do good things, good deeds in the physical world. It's no good to tell people, I feel very spiritual. I know we live here in California. People always telling you about their feelings, right? right. I feel very holy today. What do you mean you feel holy? Are you holy or are you not holy? What did you do holy today? The fact that you have feelings of holiness, that's not a practical definition. A practical definition is, you know why I feel holy? Because I had money and it was mine. And I could spend it. I could go now to Coffee Bean and buy myself a coffee and a big muffin with that money. But I didn't do that. You know what I did? I gave it to charity. So I, I uh, forgo my coffee and I forgo my muffin and I am going to give charity. Now I can feel holy, right? That's what it means to feel holy. It doesn't mean you're not holy because, you know, you, you feel holy. I woke up in the morning, I'm feeling so spiritual this morning. Um, that's not the way it works. You only feel holy if you do something holy. So Moshe Rabbeinu didn't understand. What do you mean feel spiritual? You feel spiritual if you're standing at the foot of Mount Sinai and you see God's revelation and you get the Ten Commandments, then you feel holy. Says God, no, 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 no. Zeyitnu. You've got to give charity. You've got to take the practical, physical, material world and do something with it. By the way, that's the message of Adar. That's what Adar is all about. Adar is, you have Achashverosh, who's sitting and partying and enjoying himself. He's a hedonist, right? All he wants to do is take the physical material world and take pleasure out of it. What's the difference between him and the Jews at the end of the story? They're also partying and busy with partying and revelry. What's the difference between... Ah, what they're doing is they're having a party so that they can thank Hashem. And they're giving food from, from their food and they're giving to their friends in Mishlach Manus. And they're giving charity to the poor. They're taking the physical world and they're elevating it. They become the opposite of Achashverosh. They become the opposite 
of Haman. That's what it means to be a Jew. Zeyitnu. Give the machzis a shekel. Take this coin, which you can stick in your bank account, or you can buy shares with. Zeyitnu. Make, make it a truma lashem. Continues the posuk. All those who pass through the counting from the age of 20 and upwards, Yitain Trumas Hashem, need to give this machtitz shekel. The rich man shouldn't give more, right? The rich man shouldn't say, Ah, oh, I'm rich, I'm not giving half a shekel, I'm going to give a hundred thousand shekel. No, 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 no. All we want from you, Mr. Oshir, is half a shekel. Don't show off. Don't let this become an opportunity for arrogance and pomposity. No, we want you to give half a shekel. That's the oshir. And the poor person shouldn't say, I can't, I can only give 10 cents. I can't afford to give half a shekel. I can only give 10 cents. No, no, no. Mr. Oni, you are the same as the oshir. There's no difference between you and the rich man. You have to give half a shekel and he has to give half a shekel. Everybody has to give the same half a shekel. They should all give the same donation of God. So that they can atone for their sins. You know that word Kippurim, Yom Kippur, right? You should take this atonement money from the Jewish nation. And you should um, donate it towards the work the service which goes on in the sanctuary, and it should be for the Jewish nation as a memorial before God. He should remember them positively, as it were, so that it can atone for your souls. So we see here that there's something about counting that needs atonement. That atonement is achieved through the donation of half a shekel. That shekel is used for the service of God, which causes him to remember the people who gave it in a positive way so that they can be, uh, they don't have to suffer the consequences of having been counted. You know, I've got a perfect solution for this, by the way. Don't count them. There won't be a plague. They don't have to give money. Everybody's going to save, right? It's a win-win, right? Mm. Because if they don't get counted, okay, we won't know exactly how many. Let's assume you know, we know that there was roughly 600,000 Jews. There wasn't, by the way. It was more than 600,000. 600,000. And then there was 3,550. So it wasn't quite 600,000. You know what? I'll assume it's approximately 600,000. It could be 580,000. It could be 620,000. I don't know. Is it that important? Do we really need to know the number? Is it that important that we want to risk the lives of one Jew? Is it worth risking anyone's life so that we know the exact number of Jews? Don't count them. They don't give the half a shekel. Just have a big fundraising campaign. Have a big banquet. We'll raise all the money that we would have raised with a half the shekel. Half a shekel that each person would give. And then we don't take the risk. We don't need atonement. We don't need anything. Why are we counting? We just said it's optional, right? Ki sisa, Esroish B'nei Yisrael. Ki sisa. When? Not you should. When? Why? Why do they need to be counted? I have another question for you. This is only because I know texts elsewhere in the Torah. There are other places in the Torah where we do instruct to count, right? Su'u esroish b'nei Yisrael. We know that there were countings that happened. So why is this counting presented as an option and those later counts in Bamidbar 
are not presented as optional. Why? Why is this presented as an optional count? And by the way, in those counts, did they have the machzis shekel or didn't they have the machzis shekel? If you're instructed to count, is that okay? Is it only if it's an option, then it's not okay? So you see there's a lot of issues here contained in the text, but not really contained in the text, which we really need to unpack. We need to understand them in order to get to the bottom of this whole matter. Let's start with Rashi. What was bothering Rashi? Okay. Kisisa. He says, Kisisa, what did you say before? Uh, no, that was key. What Sisa mean? Elevate, right? That's not what he says. You see, Rashi says something different. Lashon Kabbalah. I don't have the, the Targum Unculus in front of us. The Targum Unculus says, we're not talking about raising, elevating. We're talking about receiving. When you receive, what? How does that connote counting? Receive, Kabbalah, Ketargumoy. And then he adds something. He says, Keshetach poits lekabel schum minyonom ladas kamohem. When you wish to obtain the sum total of their number, to know how many they are, don't do a head count. Each person should give a machtis shekel, a half shekel. And then you're going to count the shekels and you will know how many there are. How convoluted is that? Wouldn't it be easier just to say Kisisa and when they elevated? Why is, why is Rashid saying that it means Kabbalah? So he's blaming Targum Unculus. Okay, Targum Unculus, he had his way of translating. But the most obvious translation is, as we said, Kitisa, Su'u, we know what that means. When you elevate, when you raise something up, why does he have to say it's Lashon Kabbalah? Okay, so Lashon Kabbalah means, what are you going to assume? What are you being Makabel here? What are you accepting here? The shkolim, right? So why he's not saying that? He says, When you trying to accept or want to accept, you wish to accept the number. What are you talking about the number? When you want to accept the shkolim. No, he's, he, this is a sort of arm length, arm length transaction. When you want to um, accept the number of people in the population go out and collect half shkolim and then count the half shkolim and you'll know how many there are. Why does Rashi explain the posik in such a complicated fashion? Are you with me? I think it doesn't make much sense. Okay, we'll come back to that question. And now, remember the other question we asked. What's the problem here? Why do we need to go through this whole process of collecting machtis shekels? Because there's going to be a negef. What's a negef? A plague. What's going to happen if there's a plague? Jews are going to die. What? How do you know that Jews are going to die? Why would Jews die if you count them? Says Rashi. Shahaminyan shoylet boy ayin hara. Do you know why? Numbers cause what we refer to in English as the evil eye. What's the evil eye? Something bad is going to happen if you know the number. So therefore, if you count them, you need to do something to prevent that from happening. Do you mind if I ask you a question? Don't call me cynical, okay? I'm really, I'm asking you not to call me cynical. Do you believe in the evil eye? 
Do we really believe in the evil eye? What does that mean, the evil eye? What, people are, have got evil eyes? What, how many eyes are evil? One eye is evil and one eye is good? What happens when you've got the evil eye? If, I mean, let's, let's put it to the next stage. Let's say somebody thinks very badly about someone else. Ayn Hara, whatever that means. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not translating evil eye. I'm just saying Ayn Hara. He has Ayn Hara or she has Ayn Hara on somebody. I mean, is God that superficial? That because one person is, is, is uh, negative and jealous and envious and angry and bitter, I don't know, think of the adjective. God's going to listen? That, do we really subscribe to that? That God's so, you know, I hate to put it this way, it's pathetic. That because there's some negative person out there who's got Ayn Haram, someone else, that that's going to have an effect. There's going to be a negif, a plague, people are going to die. That's what we're suggesting. I understand that people are superstitious, but it doesn't make it true. What we need to understand how the Torah understands it. I'm not talking about that, you know, there's people out there who, who are superstitious. There's people who believe in witch doctors. By the way, there's a flat earth society. There's people who believe that the earth is flat. There's a whole society of people. And if you're going to go on the Internet, you'll find them. Thousands of people who believe that all evidence that the world is spherical is a lie. It's been concocted. It's not true. The earth is flat. And if you keep on walking for long enough, you're going to fall off the end. No, I'm serious. The flat earth society. There's other people who believe that the moon landing in 1969 is a hoax. Yeah, it's true. There's other people who believe, believe this or not, that Denver Airport, in fact, has a huge underground city of masons who are, who are plotting to destroy the world. Have you been to Denver Airport? I've been to Denver Airport. I, I, I was shocked that anyone could think that. But there you go. Go online. You'll discover that Denver Airport is, in fact, a, a big Masonic conspiracy. Just because people believe in Ayn Hara does not make it true. Do you understand what I'm saying, Yvette? So we need to understand in the context of the Ayn Hara that's mentioned in Rashi. I want to understand what Rashi means. Not what, you know, uh, Yenta the matchmaker thinks. So let's, let's continue Rashi. And then the Devra will come on them because of the Ayn Hara, says Rashi. And he gives an example. Ooh, now we have an example. What's the example? Shematzinu bimei David. In Shmuel Bet, Perek Chafdalad, we have a story of King David. King David sent his generals out to do a population count. And several months later, they came back. <coughs> they came back and they gave a count of the Jews. Suddenly there was Dever. Ooh, says Rashi. He obviously didn't listen to this. He wasn't taking note of what it says in Parshat Kisisa. Kisisa is Rosh Bnei Yisrael if Kudehem and Osnu is Koifer Nafshrael Hashem Bifkoidaisam. Make sure that they give a Koifer. Make sure that they give a Trumav Hamachtisa Shekel, because otherwise there's going to be Yeh Bahem Negef Bifkodotam. There's going to be a Negef when they count them. David Amelach didn't listen to this pasuk. Really? Is that what Rashi's saying? I want to ask you a question. Do you think David HaMelech ever read Kisisa? I think so. No, do you agree with me? Yeah. I think he probably knew Parshas Kisisa. Yeah, better than us, right? Do you agree? I think he probably knew it better than us. I'll tell you something else. Even if he, that morning he had a bit of a shvacha morning, he didn't remember Kisisa that morning when he ordered it. Do you think his advisors, 
his Nevi'im and the rabbis who he used to learn with Bechavrusa every morning, do you think they knew Kisisa? Or do you think they all had collective amnesia? I'm asking you a question. What does it say in Kisisa? It says, don't count unless you take Machzisa Shekel. Because otherwise there's going to be a Negev. Comes along King David and he says, I'm going to do a count. Somebody's going to say to him, uh, uh, excuse me, your majesty, uh, uh, maybe you shouldn't do it. Do you remember Pasha's Kisiso? Kisiso? I never heard of it. No, no, no. Do you remember Pasha's Kisiso? It's in, it's in Shmois. Oh, yes, Kisiso. Let's have a look. And they open the Sefer Torah and they read Kisiso. Oh, we better not do it, right? Wouldn't you imagine that that's what would have happened? We're talking about David Melech. We're not talking about uh, an ordinary person. We're not talking about the head of the, uh, you know, the Jewish Federation in Cincinnati. We're talking about David HaMelech, King David. How is it possible that he would have done something which would have endangered the lives of the Jewish nation, the nation that he led? So far, we've only had questions. We've had very few answers. Okay, let's see if we can find some answers. First, we'll look at the Mizrahi. Mizrahi is a parish on Rashi. Mizrahi says, Kisiso Loshon Kabbalah Katargumai. Remember that we said that Rashi doesn't say Kisiso means to elevate, it means Kabbalah to accept. Milashon Lotisa Shemashav. Remember the, the commandment, Lotisa Shemashav, do not mention my name in vain, right? You mustn't blaspheme. That's the English translation of Lotisa Shemashav. Don't blaspheme. What does the word Tisa mean in that context. What does Tisa mean in the context? The Tisa Shemashov says the Mizrahi, it's not the, it doesn't mean to elevate. Milashon Yisaparo et Roshcha. That, um, remember what it says that Yosef, Joseph said to the, to the butler, he said, don't worry. Paro will elevate your head once again, as it were. He will elevate you back to your position. That's not what it means, Leitisa Shem Lashov. Ve'afa Pisha Midrash, Rabbi Tanchuma, Bavayikra, Rabba Peshu, Lashon Harama. Even though that in the Medrash, that's the way it's translated, that's not what it means. Kivan Shurachok Mi Pshutoshom Mikra. This is, it, it's far away from the way, the best way to understand the Pasuk. You know why? Rashi has a very good answer. Let's see. What does means? Don't use God's name in vain. The word tisa means use. Doesn't mean don't elevate. Can't mean don't elevate God's name in vain. Don't use it. Use it means to accept it, to, to do something with it. So why don't we say that here tisa means elevate? Because it makes more sense, if that was the case, not to use the word kitisa, but to use the word, we've said it before, it says it in Bamidbo, se'u, not tisa. Kitisa doesn't contextually make sense. Therefore, here it must mean not the same as when Yosef HaTzadik said, yisa paroi droshcha. It must mean the same way as Lotisashe Mashav. The Imkain, because if it wasn't, if that was the case, Se'u et Rosh B'nei Yisrael mi should have said the word Se'u. Lohe viu Rashi Bapirusha, and therefore Rashi doesn't use that. So now we understand why Rashi used the Targum Unculus version as opposed to the most obvious one, which was the one Marcy mentioned earlier, which is to elevate, to raise up. It doesn't mean raise up. 
In the same way, means to use, to accept. Here makes much more sense as the Targum Unculus says. Continues Rashi. When you seek to accept the number or to find out the number, to, to know how many there are, don't do a head count. Everyone gives a half a shekel. Remember the half a shekel you looked at before? No, we haven't lost it, have we? I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I can see it here. And then you're going to count the shkolim and you'll know how many there are. Why does Rashi go through such a convoluted process? Why can't you count them? The question here is, Imagine how the count is done. There's a long line of people. And they go past Moshe Rabbeinu and they all give him the shekel. And he says, Shkoyach, number 129. Shkoyach, number 130. Shkoyach, number 131. That's not the way Rashi says it, right? Rashi says, no, no. Everybody comes and puts the half a shekel into a pushka, shakes Moshe Rabbeinu's hand, says, good Shabbos, good Yom Tov, whatever they say. They walk off, they go home. The end of the day, they took all the pushkas and they counted the money. Why do it that way? Why does Rashi say that you do it that way? Why can't they count the number as the person walks past? Do you understand? If you're already giving the kapara, you're giving the machzis shekel so that you can escape the effects of the negev, why do you have to wait until the end of the day to count it? Count it right then and there. Shkoich, 129. Shkoich, 130. Shkoich, 600,005, uh, whatever it is, right? Okay, good question. So, answers the Mizrahi. He says, actually, the way Rashi phrases this, he conveys to us a number of different things. The first thing you need to realize is that the counting was not done when you received the money. There was no Shkoyach 129, Shkoyach 130, Shkoyach 131. That's not the way the counting was done. First, before the, any counting was done, they gave the money, they stuck the money in the pushka. And only then could they be counted. Actually, the counting cannot be done because then it's no different. If you count as they're giving the money, then it's no different than if you count them by t counting the number of heads or hands or whatever the method is you use. It needs to be completely separated from the individual. You're going to see a theme here. The counting is not about the individual. We need to remove the counting process from the individual who is that number. If you say Shkoyach 129, then whoever you're saying Shkoyach to, Mr. Cohen, or what actually Mr. Yisrael, right, uh, is, becomes 129. And the second Mr. Yisrael becomes 130. And the third one comes 131. It's, it's identified. The number becomes identified with that person. That's not the way a count can be done. We don't individualize the counting. It has to be done totally generally. So that we don't know which number goes to which person. Continues um, Mizrahi. You need to know 
the amount, the final figure of their total. Um, Look at the Pasuk again now. Like the top of the page. When you, when you accept Es Roish B'nei Yisrael. What does Roish B'nei Yisrael mean? What would you have thought the word Roish means? Head count, right? Head, no, no. The word Roish, says Mizrahi, as understood by Rashi, doesn't mean head. It means total. The Roish, why would the word Roish mean total? Look at this, brilliant. Do you know how accountants do it? You write the total number at the head of the page, all the calculations are below, but you write the number. We do it now at the bottom of the page. But the way they did it was, is that the most, the thing that attracts your attention when you look at a cheshben is the big number. That's the roish. So the number is when you accept the number, the total, the total complete number of the Jewish nation, don't do it in the way that you would normally do it, by counting each one individually, do it by accepting machzis shekel and counting it at the end of the day. Nikra hasach roish v'omar. And Rashi says, Lodas kamohem. Why do you do that? So you should know how many there are. Lodia shahamechuvan pa bekabalat schum minyanam huladat minyanam. What is the, what is the um, ultimate aim of accepting or uh, finding out the total number of their number, it's so that you should know the population count, that you should know, you should have a, a, an actual number of people in that population group. It's got nothing to do with the collection of money. This is not a fundraising effort. So it can be a little confusing. Somebody might think, why are they taking the half shekels? They're taking the half shekels because we need funds for the Beis HaMikdosh. No, we're taking the half shekels because we're going to count the half shekels at the end of the time of the counting and we'll know how many people there are. And now we're going to be left with however many shkolim that we are left with. What are we going to do with that money? We're using it for the Beis HaMikdosh. But that's a byproduct. That's not the main event. That's a sideshow. The main event is to avoid negev by using the machtisa shekels as a way of counting. The only way to do that, to avoid the negev, is to not do it as they give it, but to do it at the end when all the money is being collected. So that's what Rashi is conveying in one short line. You see how long the Mizrahi is going over what Rashi is saying, explaining each word. The whole purpose of this posuk is... For the Pasuk to explain to us how we're going to find out their number. How will we get this population count? Ke'ilu um, Omar. It's as if he's saying, When you seek to find out the total number of people in that population, Each person should give this coin, this machtis shekel coin. Then you're going to count the chatzoim. And then you're going to know the final number. In other words, the whole posuk is constructed in such a way that we should understand the process of counting. So now we... we have a much better understanding, not only of Rashi, but also of what the Pasuk is trying to teach us. The Pasuk is teaching us how to do a population census in such a way that nobody's life is endangered. But we still have one very big question. 
What about the David HaMelech reference? What happened with King David? Why, why did he endanger his population? Asks a little. Mizrahi asks the same question. I told you all the best questions are never my questions. Mikan mashma it would appear from what Rashi says that what King David did was he did count them by head. He didn't take Machzisa Shekel. And therefore they were subject to the Ayin Hara. And therefore there was this terrible plague and people died. He was offered a choice of how the people, what should happen to the people, whatever. He made one of the choices. You can look it up there in chapter 24 of Melochim. It's a very sad story. The kosher says Mizrahi. It's very sad. Are we suggest that David Abelach didn't know Parshas Kisisa? He didn't know that you have to count using Machsis shekels. Come on, they did it every year, right? I mean, even in the time of King David, they did. They used to. They had a mishkan. They needed to collect Machsis shekel. He knew all about the Machsis shekel count. Even if he didn't read Parshas Kisisa lately, he knew the Machzitz HaShekel count. It says in Mizrahi, even if he had temporary amnesia. There was not one person to tell him, even if he didn't read it. Okay, he had, he had, a, he had a, a moment of forgetfulness. Or maybe a moment where he wanted to do things his own way. There was no one to tap him on the shoulder and say, uh, uh, Excuse me, sir, you're doing the wrong thing? Doesn't make any sense. Does not make any sense. He's, maybe he saw the posuk at the end, which says about this money being used in the, for the base Hamikdash. What was that for? It was for the Adonim, for the sockets, the silver sockets that held the planks which formed the wall of the sanctuary and of the, of the Azara. Right? So he, perhaps he thought that these um, silver uh, Adonim, that the silver was originally used for, oh, we don't need that anymore. Because we've got Adonim, so we don't need that. He thought to himself, okay, of course he knows Kisisa. He knows Kisisa. He reads the Torah. He's very familiar with the words of the Torah. But that instruction about Machtis HaShekel was very much related to It's to, not for the service of the sanctuary, but for the physical formation of the Adonim that hold up the sanctuary, the sockets of the wall that separates the Azora from the sanctuary. Those were, um, those were made from the silver that was melted down from the Machtis HaShekel from this count. Thinks David HaMelech, no, no, Kisisa, I know Kisisa, but that was for then. It's got nothing to do with now. So he, so he made that mistake, and that was a fatal mistake because people died. Or, I, oh, sorry, continues. It's not because there is an ongoing concern that the Torah has, that God has, that you're not allowed to do a head count. It was then, particular th- then thing for then. He saw in the Pasuk that it says, and each person should give an atonement for his soul. It's in all, it's, they were already had the head count, right? Kisisa is Rosh B'nai Yisrael. They already had the head count. 
And now that they've had their head count, they will have to, and the Ayin Hara has started, there's already a Negev, now they're going to give the Machtis shekel, and that's going to resolve the problem of them having had a head count. So David HaMelech made a mistake in judging how this, um, how this thing was going to play out. If there is an Ayin Hara, it's not a problem. I'll then get Machtis shekel from everybody, and that will save the day. But in an ordinary situation, there's nothing wrong with doing a head count and counting each person individually. So he actually made a mistake. Uh, and because he got it wrong, there was a terrible tragedy after he did that population census. Um, he also didn't read the posuk, or he didn't remember that the posuk says that they should give the chati shekel after they've given it. That means that the chati shekel comes afterwards. Um, he thought the posuk means that first they get counted, and then afterwards they get the shkolim, and that's going to be their kapara. He counted them by using each individual person. means literally a head count. Don't think that he didn't ask for chati shekel. He even asked for the chati shekel. But he did it in the wrong order. He did it, not because he, not by collecting all the chatishkolim and then afterwards counting the chatishkolim as they went past him he said shkoyach one twenty nine shkoyach one thirty shkoyach one thirty one so he didn't realize that he'd he'd got something wrong he didn't make this separation between the counting of the individuals or the t- accepting the money from the individuals and the counting of them later. He did it all at the same time. Let me just finish the paragraph. So, because it doesn't separate the giving of the shkolim, at least in this part, doesn't tell us that afterwards they gave the shkolim, and then after that the shkolim were counted, it's a little bit ambiguous, and therefore David HaMelech got it wrong. That's the way the Mizrahi interprets it. So, on that basis, we now begin to understand what happened in the time of David HaMelech. Not assisted by all the explanations that we've been through, which perhaps we uh, arrived at as a result of the experience of King David, he got it wrong, even though he knew Parshas Kisisa, even though there were plenty of people in his court who could remind him of Parshas Kisisa if he had a momentary lapse and forgot it. Nevertheless, he got it wrong because he, did, he combined the two, the counting and the machtis shekel together. We still don't know what's wrong, why the Ayin Hara works. But what we do know is how David HaMelech made a mistake. And we also know the process, which is explained to us by Rashi, of how the census, the population census needs to be carried out. Continues the Mizrahi. Just let's get through to the end. And then we'll look at Kasuto. Fascinating. Ach kosher. It's still difficult to believe that that's what happened with King David, David HaMelech. In Cain, Keshepoka, David is a Om Vesholach, Hashlish Biyad Yoyov, Vashlish Biyad Avishai Ben Tsruya, Vashlish Biyad Itai Hagiti. In another place, we know that David HaMelech counted the population and he put, gave a third to Yoav, he gave a third to Avishai, and a third to Itai Hagiti. You know who Itai Hagiti was? He was a non Jewish person who helped David HaMelech at the time of the rebellion of Avsholim, 
Do you remember that David HaMelech had a son called Avshalom? And he rebelled against his father. And he wanted his father to be deposed and that he should be crowned as king. And David HaMelech got amazing support at that time. One of the people who supported him wasn't even Jewish, was a Gentile. His name was Itai Hagiti, who was a righteous Gentile. And he helped David HaMelech preserve his royal throne, as a result of which Avshalom was conquered. But at that time, David HaMelech wanted to know how many people he had on his team. And he sent out these three people to count how many people he's got on his How many people can I rely on? What's the number of the people in my army? Does that sound like a census? It sounds like a population count of some description. So how come then there was no Negev? How come they weren't destroyed? How come they weren't plagued? How come there was no Ein Hara, whatever you're going to call it, at that time? Not only was he successful, he was victorious against Avshalom. Surely the opposite should have happened. He counted them. Something bad should have happened to him, to them, to everyone. But nothing bad happened. So how come when they counted, nothing bad happened? But on the other occasion, when David HaMelech counted, uh, it, was, it was a terrible disaster. The Shema, he answers as follows. Yesh Loimar. Shema Shaminyan Shoilet Bohen Enoi Elo Keshenimnin Kol Yisrael Beyachad. So he comes up with a solution. And he suggests that this problem of the Ayin Hara, and here we're going to get to some understanding, at least from his perspective, the Ayin Hara is only Sholet, only works, is only a force, if you count everyone. When you count everyone at the same time, then you're going to have a problem. If you just count one group of people, that's not an issue at all. So you know that we have this Minig, in Shul, when we want to know if there's a minion, we don't say 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. We use a posuk. There's 10 words in that posuk. So if we want to know if we have a minion, then we count. We don't have, we've only got six. We don't have. Right? We don't. Why? Because we don't, we know that there's an Ayn Hara. That's what we, we're learning here, right? If, if you have a number, according to the Mizrahi, there's no reason to do that. Because if you're not counting the entire population, unless the entire population of Jews in the world is 10 people over the age of 20, there's no reason to be concerned, according to the, what the Mizrahi has just said, about counting 10 people who come to shul. Because that's not the whole population of the, of the Jews. It's only a problem, he says, and that's why David HaMelech had an issue and why Moshe Rabbeinu is being warned. If you do a population census of the entire population of Jews in the world, then you have a problem and you have to give a machtis shekel and go through the process as described by Rashi interpreting the Pasuk. But if it's just a bunch of Jews, David HaMelech wants to know how many Jews support him in his battle against his son who wants to replace him. That's not the whole Jewish population. He knows for sure it's not the whole Jewish population because he knows Avshalom has supporters. In that case, there's no issue. You can count them and there's not going to be Ein Ein Hara. In fact, he was victorious against Avshalom. 
When you count just a small proportion, there's no problem whatsoever. When he counted the whole population of Israel and Judah, there was a problem and they encountered the plague and that was a terrible disaster. When he counted the group of people that were just with him, his Anshe Shleimenu, his group of people that were his Hasidim that were going to help him and defend him and fight for him in this rebellion of his son, that was going to be totally fine. That he went and he beat Avshalom in the battle. Okay, let's look at Kasuto. Okay, so you know Kasuto was? Moshe David Kasuto? It was amazing. He was a Bible scholar. Um, uh, he li- I mean, he was mainly active in the early part of the 20th century. He was Italian. Mm-hmm. And he was a historian as well. So he didn't just look at things uh, in the Torah in the context of Chazal. He'd say, what was going on in Egypt at the time when this was uh, being written? Or, you know, in the same historic period. What was going on in Mesopotamia? What was going on with the, uh, you know, Aramean Empire? What was the minute? What does it say in the Amorabi laws? You know, on a similar subject, he would contextualize things that are in the Torah on the basis of contemporary history of the time, of the era. And sometimes he'd come up with the most unbelievable chidushim. Because he'd discover the things which had puzzled Chazal because they didn't live at that time and they didn't know that history. And puzzled the commentaries, the Rishonim and everyone else. Actually, it was not that puzzling at all. Because if you look at it in the context of what was going on at the time, it makes a lot of sense. Look, Yes, Kasuto, right. Because later he was in Hebrew University and they published his, his works. Amazing. So yeah, you should look him up. Moshe David Kasuto. Umberto, his name was in Italian. Um. Huh? Nechama Leibowitz relies a lot on Kasuto, correct. So I'm going to read the English, I've translated it for you. In Mesopotamia, taking a census was linked to a religious rite of purification. There is this ancient concept of linking a census of a population to a rite of purification. He calls it, but tekes dati shel tahara. This ceremony was of such great importance that the entire census was named after it. He's discovered an ancient Mesopotamian uh, population census which is named after this particular purification process, the ceremony that concluded the census. This was apparently because counting the people was considered a sin of lack of faith in the divine. So he has an interesting take on this based on contemporary history. Do you know what's wrong with the population census? It makes out as if you don't really believe in Hashem. You need to know the number, right? You're such a rationalist. You're so OCD. I need to know exactly how... What are you talking about? Why do you need to know the number? By the way, why does any uh, country do a census? We need to know how much wheat we need. We need to know how much barley we need. We need to know how much water we need. We need to know how much gasoline we need. Because if we know that there's more or less population in in particular places in the country, then we know how we're going to have to divide up our resources and transport them to that particular location, right? That being the case, 
It's a sin of a lack of emuna. You don't have proper faith in God. God is the one who provides, not you. And if God creates a population of the chosen people, and that chosen people he promises are going to be provided for, what difference does it make if there's going to be a thousand or ten thousand or a hundred thousand more or less? That's not a problem. Shouldn't be an issue. That's what he says. Therefore, it was accompanied by a ritual of atonement and purification from sin. So at the same time as you do a population count, because you have some type of lack of faith, you need to go through a process of kapara. You need to acknowledge the fact that you, are di- you have diminished faith. And this is similar to the Israelite view. Now he compares it to our own version, to what's going on here. And therefore a ransom, a kofar needs to be paid, must be given at the time of the count. And it says once again, And therefore that there will not be a plague among them when you count them. What does that mean, Kilomar? Through this ransom of the children of Israel, they are saved from punishment that they might have received for the sin of taking a census. An interesting, Kasuto is interesting, right? Something slightly different. Let's look at what the Vilna Gaon says. The Vilna Gaon says as follows. Fascinating. He says, actually, this was very unique to this particular moment in history. It sounds like he's disagreeing with Rashi. He says that the giving of the Machtis HaShekel was only for this particular occasion. How did Sha'ul count the people? He used the Bezek. You know what the Bezek was? It's not the phone company in Israel. Okay, it's not the phone company. It's not. Bezek in Israel means communication in modern Hebrew. No, no. In, in Tanakh, when Shaul HaMelech counted them with a Bezek, it means, well, one, according to Wampshat, there was a place called Bezek. Did you know that? Ah, that's not what we, we usually understand Bezek to mean some type of stone. But they had little pebbles, and each person gave a pebble. They didn't give a machtis shekel. That each one gave a pebble, and then they counted the pebbles at the end of the day. Another time that Shaul counted the people, he did tilaim. What's tilaim? Lambs. He collected a lot of lambs, and those lambs were counted at the end of the day. We didn't count the people, we counted the lambs, and then we knew the number of people. The gam lo al adanim. And not that he needed to give them for adanim. And this is, he agrees with what Mizrahi says. No reason to give silver for the adonim, because the adonim were already made. You don't need to give silver again for the same thing, right? It's done. And it says, It says, they should give this. It's, there's no commandment to be counted, or to count. You should know, what is the... That he divides the psukim into two. There's two separate um, elements here to the beginning of Parshas Kisisa. The first is the nasnu ishkoifer nafshay lashem bifkoid oisam v'layivahem negev bifkoid oisam v'zeyitnu. That's the tzivui achshav. Each person in that particular time, in that particular place, in the midbar with Moshe Rabbeinu, they're now going to be counted, have to give a machtis a shekel so that the plague shouldn't affect them, and this is what they need to give. That's for then. It's got nothing to do with later on. End, period, over. Now, second posuk. 
ועל אבוידס המשכון בלוי מיניון, ועל זה הציבור לא ירבה ולא ימית, וזהו שלא ימונו איסא בתריאג מצווס, ואתה יודע שזה לא קאונט על תריאג מצווס. הגיבינג של מחסיס השקל לאחר שאני רק הסכמתי, And that this machzis hashekel that I showed you earlier has got to do with that's got to do with supporting the avodas hakodesh of the mishkan, so supporting the work of the mishkan. Nothing to do with adanim. That's why the word is ambiguous. Avodat ohel moed, right? It's according to one version, it's about the creation of the adanim, which supported the pillars, the planks of the walls of the of the mishkan. According to this version, it's got nothing to do with it. Avodat Ohel Moed is the work that was done in the Ohel Moed, the Beit HaMikdash. We need to support the work of the Beit HaMikdash. Each person gives a machzis a shekel. They weren't counted. No, they weren't counted. I mean, they were counted, but it had nothing to do with the population centers. The second posuk is about supporting the work of the Ohel Moed. The first posuk is about a particular count in a particular place in a particular time that Moshe Rabbeinu had to be careful about. That had nothing whatsoever to do with the machtis shekel, where a rich person can't give more and the poor person can't give less. Okay? Let's have a look now at the Malbim. A few more minutes. So, Rashi says as follows. Says the Malbim. That... Um, Don't do a head count when you need to know the number of people in the population. Ella, what should you do? Each person should give a half a shekel and you'll know the number of people and then there won't be a plague. Why? Because when you count people, says the Malbim, there's going to be a problem of Ayin Hara and there's going to be a plague. A plague's going to come upon them and they're going to die. And that's what happened in the days of David. In the David HaMelech. Remember, that's what Rashi said. So, according to that, says the Malbim, It appears that what Rashi is trying to tell us is that in the days of Moshe Rabbeinu, when they did the population count, they didn't count each person as a head count. You, 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 you. They counted the Shkolim. And this was the commandment for many generations to come, that they shouldn't count... People individually. Don't say you are number one, you are number two, you are number three, you are number four. And we don't do Hoshia Samecha either. We take the Shkolim. At the end of the day, we count the Shkolim. Rakalide Shkolim. Shekein ayin mashe kosev parshas bamidbar. La gugaloisam. Each time you use the word the gugaloisam in the Torah, says Rashi, Pirish Rashi there. What does he say? Alide Shkolim. How do we count as a head count? No, no. The gugaloisam is just a figure of speech. It doesn't mean you counted their heads. One, two, three, four, five. It's a figure of speech. Whenever we talk about counting in the Torah, you know what we're talking about? Getting shkolim, and that's the way they need to be counted. And the shkolim are the method by which we're going to prevent... What are we going to prevent? Death and destruction. We're going to prevent the plague. That's, what, that's how we're going to do it. Through the medium of of the shekel, of the chatzi shekel, that's how we're going to prevent the plague. That's what the Malbim is saying as an interpretation of Rashi. And, the, and Abarbanel, he said, he quotes Abarbanel here, has a terrible problem. He can't understand Rashi. And in his opinion, that in Midbar Sinai and Avosmoyev, the counting was done with the instruction of Hashem, and they didn't give shkolim, even though they counted by a head count. He said... The Abarbanel has a different opinion completely. He says Rashi's got it wrong. In this case, 
there was no instruction. How do we know that there was no instruction? It says, ki siso. Ki, when, if. If you ever go ahead and do a count, make sure that you don't, um, that you don't do it unless you have machtis shekel medium that's going to prevent something bad happening. But when God gives you an instruction to count, you must count. So, don't worry, you can do a head count. God instructs you. Nothing bad's going to happen if God instructs you to do something. You don't have to use a medium. You don't have to protect yourself from Ein Hara if God really instructs you to do it. That's what Barbanel says. Uh, in this particular situation, he was counting them on his own volition. He wanted to count them, and therefore there was a danger. And he wanted to know how many people there were. So Hashem said to him, make sure they give shkolim so that they can prevent the negef. And this was a piece of advice and also that he should have enough money because they hadn't given enough money yet for the building, for the construction of the Mishkan. So we know that in this particular situation, at least according to Abarbanel, there was a machtis shekel. But in every other given situation, if God instructs to count, there's a population census, it's not a problem. By the way, the way we do a census today is no problem either. How do we do a, how do we do a census today? Well, now we're all very modern. We do it online, right? When you do it online, it's like doing a machtis shekel, Because you're just filling out a form, you press a button. I mean, it could be if they wanted to check if it's who said what, that they can check it. But really what they're doing is they're taking statistics. There's a national office of statistics that works through the answers that you give, goes through a computer process. It's not something where they're looking at you and they're saying, you're number one, you're number two, you're number three. We avoid a direct contact with the person who's doing the counting if there's any type of medium that interrupts in between the counting and the final count. Do you understand what I'm saying? Continues the Malbim. And he doesn't want to go into too much detail, and I won't either. He wants to say as follows. Even the minion on the Midbar and the Arvas Moyov, even though it was done with... Um, by head count, they gave shkolim. So he says there's always this combination. Head count, shkolim. Don't think that there's no machtis shekel if a person gets counted as an individual. And it was the same in the same, um, uh, same version um, and the same reason because they don't want to have the plague. Obir ha'inyun lefidati says as follows. And I'm going to offer you an explanation. At least in my view, this is what the Malbim says. It's on page three of your, of your um, source sheet. The second paragraph of the Malbim. What was going on? There in particular, there was a problem that they had just had the Negev, the plague, as a result of having been involved in the sin of the golden calf. And Moshe was very, very nervous, very anxious, and he was... Um, desperate to count them so that he could know how many of them had died as a result of this plague. He wanted to really get a grip on this situation. And he was very fearful that this counting could somehow be damaging. He went to Hashem, he said, what should I do? I want to count them. 
You're going to tell me Hashem could have told him the number. Okay, he wanted to go through a population census and know exactly what was going on in, his, uh, in the group of people that he led. But he was concerned about doing it. So God, so, um, so what was he going to do? He wanted perhaps count them using a bezek, like Shaul did, and who counted them with a bezek or with lambs, right? So that he wouldn't do a head count. So God said to him, no, no, no. When you go ahead with this count that you're doing as a result of your anxiety after the sin of the golden calf, do do a head count. You need to see each person to see what's going on with them. Don't do it through counting pebbles and don't do it through counting shkolim. Count them themselves. And that's what it says specifically in the Pasuk. Each person who goes past the counters, each person needs to be, count, needs to be counted individually. However, Make sure that they give these machzis hashekel coins so it can be a kapara for them and atonement. And therefore there won't be this negev. So in order to avoid the negev, make sure that they give this in exchange. So he completely disagrees with the Mizrahi's interpretation of Rashi. Maybe even with Rashi. He's saying that they were counted lagogailes. And that's what it means. Can't mean anything else. However, give the machtis a shekel, and that neutralizes the threat from the negef. That's what he is saying. The gamif tichu, and God also promised him. He promised him, if you do this, even the plague that's now threatening you because of the sin of the golden calf, that will cease. That will be over. It's going to be fine. Everything's going to be good. And he's saying, I will ensure that the negef is over. He's the Malbim is saying that this portion of Kisisa, even though it comes before the story of the sin of the golden calf, is actually an integral part of that story. It happened afterwards, but it's part of that story. There was a plague. And Moshe Rabbeinu wants to make sure that he can count the Jews to know how many are left. The plague is still raging. And God is saying to him, let them give a machzis a shekel. And then the plague will be over. Why, why does this work? Why do they need to give a machzis a shekel? Why is the plague, this particular plague, going to be over if they give a machzis a shekel? Says the Malbim, a very interesting idea. It's like those refuos, those medications that you have, that paradoxically, the same thing as the illness. What is, what is a vaccine? When you have a, a flu vaccine, they're giving you the flu. They're giving you an innocuous version of the flu, which will uh, create the antibodies in your body so that you can beat a real flu when it comes during the course of the winter. But you're actually injecting yourself with the flu. The same with all vaccines, by the way. They find a, um, a, uh, a version of a particular sickness that's not dangerous. And then they inject you with that. And that creates the antibodies in your body. If you want, it's, it's a paradox. But if you want to beat something, you have to be better than it. You have to do something with it that's better than it. And he gives two examples here. How did he 
uh, how did God tell them to turn the bitter waters into water that could be drunk? He says, take this bitter um, wood, stick it into the water, and that will turn the water into something drinkable. It's a paradox. Bitter and bitter make sweet, but that's the way it worked. Similarly, how is it that you're going to beat off the um, venomous bites of the snakes in that time in Bamidbar when they were, there was this snake infestation? By the the copper snake, we once made, gave a share on the copper snake. And similarly, here, how are you going to beat off the golden calf? What was the golden calf? They collected gold from everybody. Oh, everybody was so eager to give the gold for this golden calf. How are you going to do kapara and atonement for the golden calf? Go and get a chatsi shekel from every single person and make sure that you have adanim, you have the sockets to support the pillars, the planks that hold up the, the other wall of the mishkan. That's going to be the antidote to the golden calf. And the fact that he uses the word ki in the pasuk, if you want to count, I'm not telling you to count. You don't have to count. But if you want to count, if what you're saying is, is a real desire, he didn't say that he has to do it. Because this was said before the Cheta Egel. In fact, this wasn't something that happened. It's possible that this happened even before the Cheta Egel. And he was giving him prescient advice. There may come a time, wink, wink, says God, when wink, wink, the Jewish nation will have a plague. And you may want to count them. You know what I mean. It hasn't happened yet, but it may happen. In that case, Kiti side, Rosh B'nai Israel, make sure to do this. Follow this sequence and do it in this way. And then there won't be any danger. It was just, it was good advice. It was um, a prescient advice for something that may happen in the future. But if you need to count them, if they have sinned. Similarly, the count that took place in the plains of Moab um, after, the, after the plague. God says, count each one individually. You need to know each one. Look at them, each one of them in the eye. And it's most likely that they also gave just as Moses was instructed right here in Kisisa, Shahula Doris, because this was an instruction for the future. He disagrees with the Vilna Gon. He says this was a permanent instruction of how to count if you need to do a population count. Make sure you do the population count each individually, but take a Machtisa Shekel when you do it. And this counting through the Machtisa Shekel will be a cure for the Negev, for the plague. Omna. However, Masha Omar, Shiyitnu Maxis a shekel dafka. That which it says that they have to give a Maxis a shekel, the Oshila Yarbe Vadala Yamit, and the rich person is not allowed to give more, and the poor person is not allowed to give less, Yesh by Kavana Acheres. That is where there's a different Kavana. Now we're going to get to King David. We're going to understand what the iron horror is and how we're beating the iron horror. What? Because that was a good question, right? What is the iron horror? What is the issue here? We need to understand the issue. And now, we, now we're going to get to the bottom of it beautifully. 
כי כל עוד שהעם מזעכתי ועם כולם כאיש אחד זכוס הרבים גדול מאוד. Do you know what the problem is? When you count people individually, they all turn into individuals. And suddenly the unity is lost. Suddenly we're not looking at a group of people. And we can't all, you know, we're not all able to rely on somebody else's good deeds or somebody else's positivity or somebody else's abilities to survive. Suddenly we're just there on our own merit. Imagine... It's not a society, it's just a bunch of individuals. And now I need to do, I'm just going to give you a mundane example because uh, we're in that season, right? I need to do my taxes. But I'm just on my own, there's no accountants. It's just me. I can't rely on an accountant to do it. How are my tax returns going to look? Not very good, they're going to look terrible. I need an accountant. But by the way, the accountant needs me. Because imagine the accountant didn't have anybody who needed to do tax returns. He wouldn't have a parnasa, right? He needs me to need to do tax returns in order for him to earn a living. Imagine I went to the convenience store and it wasn't open. Right? It wouldn't be very convenient. Right? I wouldn't be able to buy the things that I need. I need people to open up the convenience store. I mean, I can't do it because I've got a job. I'm doing something else. I'm giving a share. I can't be at the convenience store, but I need someone there because if I don't have someone there, then I won't, have, I, won't have, I won't be able to buy the things that I need. You need a society of every single kind of person. And nobody should think that they're more important or less important. Everybody's equally important. We all need each other. We're all crutches for each other. The danger of a population census is suddenly people might think, oh, I'm important because I'm me. Forget that person. Who needs that person? I don't need that person either. It's just all about me. That is the danger. It will fragment society. And therefore, we need to count people and beware of the fact that we might cause rifts and cracks and problems within society because suddenly people might think, I'm more important, I'm more important. By the way, I want to tell you something. It's not a political, a party political broadcast. What was the problem with communists? It sounds like a beautiful idea. It doesn't it sound like a beautiful idea? You know, up the workers, the workers should have rights and the bosses are taking all the profits. What happened after they established communism in the, you know, behind the Iron Curtain? Was it a utopia? No, it wasn't. Why, why is that? Because unfortunately, or fortunately actually, you need bosses to run companies. Because they know how to be efficient. And sometimes people lose their jobs and then we need to find them other jobs. If the workers control it and they eradicate everybody else in society, it's also complete chaos. You need every segment of society. Never write off any segment of society. There's no such thing as parasites. The Baal Shem Tov says you even need a Ganath. Can you imagine that? The Baal Shem Tov said you even need a guy. Society even needs Ganovim. By the way, if there were no Ganovim, there wouldn't be insurance companies. Right? <laughs> and even the insurance brokers need to earn a living. Everybody needs to be... It's, it's a weird thing to say. We need every type of person. We need people who are poor... Because otherwise we wouldn't have the opportunity to give charity. 
Imagine we had Purim and we came to Matanas Le'evyonim and we wouldn't have anyone to give charity to. So we can't do the mitzvah. We need every person of society is we need to be one united group that understands the importance of everybody else. And that's what the Malbim says. When you count them and suddenly you separate everyone from everyone else. Um, suddenly we're going to look at each individual person. Is this person really worth in society? Do we really need this person? Do we need that person? Is that person important? For us... And then the plague is going to come upon them. It's going to be a disaster if you do a population census and consider each person on their individual merits. That's not what we want. And in order to correct this, And for this reason, God instructed that everybody needs to give exactly a machzis a shekel. Why half a shekel? Why not one shekel? Because this create this will impress upon people the fact that they need to be united into a group. Because each individual is only half. He's not a whole. He's only part contribution to whatever it is that society is about. The Lord of our Sholem, he's not complete. I'm not complete without every single other person in society that enables me to function. I need the plumber to fix my toilet, and I need the shopkeeper to sell me my milk, and I need my accountant to do the taxes, and he needs me to give the shear and the drosha on Shabbos, right? Everybody is necessary. Everybody is necessary in society. We need others to combine and unite with us so that we can become complete. We only become complete through others. And he gives the example of the, of the rich man and the poor man. Um, the the Usher is going to increase what he wants to give because he wants to be proud of himself. I gave a lot of charity. But you know what? He is rich only for one reason, so that he can give money to the poor. Don't think that you're rich so that you can have a lot of money in your bank account. Oh, no. That's not why God gave you money. God gave you money so that you can contribute back to society. That's a responsibility. That's a massive... No, I know not everybody gets it, but that's a responsibility. You know why you're an Oshir? You know why you've got extra money this month? So that you can give a bit of money to the poor, right? Maser, whatever it is. And each one has their role to play. This one gives and this one takes. The rich man and the poor man have a partnership. The rich is a giver and the poor is a taker and together they become one. Two halves that become one. Everybody is a machtis shekel. You and me and all of us. Everybody is just a machtis shekel. There's not one person who can be considered sholem. That's the purpose of machtis shekel, And that's how we're going to eradicate the plague. We're going to unite society and make them into one. Not separate them out and turn them into individuals. But 
We want to ensure that the population census, that counting the group, is going to bring them all together, not separate them and turn them into something which is apart. We'll leave it here. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi. That's great.